Great to see you all tonight. If, does it feel like a month since we've been here at Thrive? feels like too long, but it's great to see all of you tonight. It's great to be uh, back talking about the gospel of Luke uh, together. And I don't know about you, but have you ever forgotten your tickets to some important event you were going to? Concert, a baseball game, or something like that? I can think of multiple times where, thankfully I've never actually made it there and realized I forgot my tickets, but I can think of multiple times I've been in my car on the way to an event and thought, I don't have my tickets. And now in that moment, what do I do? And eh, it doesn't matter. I'll figure something out. No, that's not what I think at all. I turn the car around and I go home and get my tickets. Because if I don't have my tickets, I'm not getting in. They're not going to let me into Disneyland without my ticket. They're not going to uh, let me into Dodger Stadium without my ticket or whatever concert. The, the, the ticket is essential to getting in. And you do whatever it takes to make sure that you've got that with you. Well, tonight we're talking about the word and the idea in the Bible of repentance. And repentance is crucial according to the Bible. The Bible makes it clear no one is getting in as a Christian. No one is going to heaven who has not repented of their sin. This is not something like, yeah, repentance, I don't really get what that, that means. I'll, I'll figure it out later. That's like, eh, I don't have my tickets. I think they'll let me in. No, no, repentance is essential. But here's the thing. When you go to a baseball game, when you go wherever you go and you've got that ticket, you know, you scan that ticket, you get into the stadium, and then you fold that ticket up, you put it in your pocket, and you never ever think about it again. That ticket had one purpose, to get you in. And now it's worthless. Repentance is not at all like that. Repentance is not just, oh yeah, that's what kind of gets me in the door of this Christianity thing. The Bible especially the New Testament, talks so much about repentance and faith and makes it clear those are the correct responses to the good news of Jesus Christ that lead us to salvation. But the New Testament also makes clear those then become guiding principles and characteristics of the Christian life all the way through. Uh, last week, we had Fall Fest here at our church on October 31st, also known as Halloween. Well, I grew up in Texas, I went to a really, really small Christian school at a small church there in Texas. And every October 31st at that school wasn't Halloween, it was Reformation Day. And we would literally play games like pin the theses on the door. Uh, we'd do relay races where you had to carry your burden up the hill like uh, Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. That's what we would do on Reformation Day because it was on October 31st that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door of the Castle Church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And you've probably heard a lot more about it this year because it's the 500th anniversary. It was 1517 when he did that, when he nailed those 95 theses to the door and started something that really has changed the world and changed the course of history. Do you know what the first of those 95 theses are? The first one says, uh, says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So it doesn't matter where you are in the room tonight, from whether you're still trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing is all about to where, you know, you've been saved for a long time. 
Repentance is something that all of us need to grasp and should be something that characterizes all of our lives. And so take your Bibles and let's open them back up to Luke 19 because what we see here is an amazing picture of somebody repenting. In Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. And I I told Pastor Mike that I don't know how he did this, but for those of you that grew up in the church like I did and went to Sunday school as a kid, he made it through an entire sermon about Zacchaeus without referring to him as a wee little man. I was like, that probably took some self-control. But here, we let's read the the story again together. Luke 19, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho, Jesus entered Jericho, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature, aka a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. The people that were watching this, they grumbled. Why? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And that gets us back into his being a tax collector who was rich. He was rich because he was fleecing other people. Because he was taking more than he should have and making himself rich at other people's expense. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. As we talked about that, as Pastor Mike talked about that uh, this weekend, looked at three things. First, be glad that God draws sinners to repent. And we see Jesus at work in he's seeking Zacchaeus and drawing him out. And then rejoice that grace covers the penitent, that even someone like Zacchaeus could be forgiven. And then joyfully live your new life for Christ. The, The obvious change and immediate change this made in the life of Zacchaeus. But as we follow up tonight, I want us to really think about this idea of repentance and remember that this is something for all of us, that we need to understand and commit to a lifetime of repentance. I put that down for our first point as we follow up tonight. Commit to a lifetime of repentance. Pastor Mike helped define and illustrate repentance with two simple words in his message this weekend, renounce and resolve. That I'm going to renounce what I have been doing and I'm resolving to do something else. Or I believe it was a couple months ago in a sermon where he was talking about repentance, he offered another simple two-part definition that says, I've done wrong and I'll do right. It's another way I renounce what I was doing. That was wrong. God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm going to do the right thing. And ultimately, everyone here needs to ask, is that something that I have done In my life. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, this spiritual leader 
among the people that says, hey, unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, I mean, if there was anybody that would have been good enough, good with God, it would have been a guy like Nicodemus. He was one of the spiritual leaders. But Jesus, before Nicodemus even asks any questions, he just points his finger at him and says, unless you're born again, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that would have been a shocking statement. And born again, it's not like, hey, you know, there's this needs to be this little new thing. No, it, this is a big deal. This is an entire change. When we're talking about repentance, we're not talking about, you know, a simple course correction that, ah, just straighten it out a little bit. No, that's not what we're talking about. Repentance is a, is a turning. It's a U-turn. And, and that's what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. There is a complete turning, a, a total transformation, regeneration. That, that's what goes on. And another thing that we need to see here, especially from Luke chapter 19, is that repentance leads to immediate forgiveness. Did you catch that at the end of the story? So he sees Zacchaeus repent. He renounces what he was doing. He resolves to do something different. Verse 8, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And then look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, great. When you've done that, you'll be forgiven. Is that what it says in verse 9? No. It says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. The salvation and the forgiveness, it is immediate there. That repentance is primarily an internal thing. It's an internal renunciation and resolve to do the right thing. And it differs from the idea maybe you've heard of of penance. The idea that I've got to go now do something to make up for what I've done. Again, we think about Martin Luther in the 95 Theses. This was number two. It says, this word, repent, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is, confess and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. That this is different. That the idea of penance is you've got to go do something as atonement, as, as satisfaction for your sin. You, you've got to make up for it. That's anti-Christian, anti-gospel teaching. The Bible makes it clear, Jesus is the satisfaction. He is the atonement for our sin, and he alone is that. I can't go do something to make up for my sin. So repentance isn't, okay, I got to go do all these good things, and then maybe God will forgive me. No, it's, it's the moment. It's the decision that happens in your heart. But, thesis number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. That if you truly repent on the inside, it will show itself on the outside. But the forgiveness happens as soon as the repentance does. Now, that's the biblical pattern. Sure, repentance is going to show itself, but it's not, oh, well, go do all these good things and then you will be forgiven. No, Jesus tells Nicodemus, today, right now, salvation is here because, Nicodemus, you've repented. And we're going to talk a little more about what repentance is, but I want us all to think about it on two different levels here. On the one hand, we've got, let's just call it repentance with, you know, capital R, repentance. Repentance in the ultimate sense, that we all need to repent of our sins if we're going to be saved. We have to 
make that U-turn with our lives, saying, God, I'm going the wrong way. I'm headed the right direction. I need forgiveness. I need Christ to turn my life around, and now I'm going to follow you. Jesus is the Lord. He is my master. We all need that capital R, repentance. But on the other hand, I want us to think, let's just call it lowercase r, repentance. Like we talked about uh, thesis number one, the entire Christian life is to be one of repentance. That okay, you're a Christian now and, and your life has totally turned around. You're headed in a different direction than you were before. But there's still gonna be things that come up in your life where you realize, I'm the wrong way on this. That there's something wrong here. And in that smaller, specific sense, I need to turn around. Repentance should be something that goes on for all of us the rest of our lives. Not just our ticket in, not just something that happened when we became a Christian, but something that we are continuing to do as we see sin. So what is repentance? We want to talk about it a little bit from this book that Pastor Mike recommended along with the sermon this weekend, an old Puritan book called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. And he lists six ingredients of repentance. And let's go through these. And the first one is sight of sin. That if you're going to turn from your sin, first you have to see it. Now the Bible makes clear, ultimately, especially for unbelievers, this is something God has to do. As non-Christians, we're blind, but God opens up our eyes and causes us to see what's wrong. But for many of you in the room that God has done that, he has shown you your sin, you've put your faith in Christ, you're a, a new creation in Christ, God is going to continue to show you sin in your life. And what is the primary way he's going to do that? Right here. That he is going to show you your sin through the word of God. This is the mirror that we should look in and say, whoa, this, this is off. This is not the way it should be. Just like before you get out of your house every morning, you look in the mirror to say, does everything look okay? Does anything need to be changed? That's the way we should always come to God's word. We should always come ready saying, God, show me if there's something wrong in my life. This should be a regular part of your Bible study and your Bible reading or every time you come to church, one of the things you should be looking for, even one of the things you should be praying for is God, show me my sin. And too many times we, we come to the word just looking for it to give us something that maybe feels good and positive instead of, hey God, show me my sin. Step one is sight of sin. Ingredient number two is sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. And a common reference in the Bible, even to how we should deal with our sin, is that of tears. Think of Jesus in the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, some of you are like, well, Pastor Ben, I'm just not a very, very emotional person. I don't cry. Well, fair. Not everyone is going to express their sorrow the same way. Not some, many of you aren't going to start weeping when, when you're sad about something. But we all get sad, and we all express sorrow. And God is calling us to be sorrowful for our sin. And I'd like to really emphasize this to those of you in the room that you're, hey, capital R, repentance. I have turned from my sin. I put my faith in Christ. Well, now as you're walking down the road of the Christian life, don't minimize this sorrow that you should have when you see sin in your life. And don't let your theology do this. That, hey, 
I'm justified by faith alone, that I don't have to go do penance and make up for my sin, so I don't really need to feel that sorry for it. God's forgiven me. Great. Yes, that's true, but don't just skip right over that sorrow that God is calling you to do. Why? Why shouldn't you skip over that sorrow? Well, for one thing, it will make Christ sweeter to you. When you really see your sin for what it is, when you are sorrowful over your sin, how much more grateful is that going to make you that that sin is forgiven? And it'll also make your comfort sweeter. The comfort that you have in the forgiveness of your sin will be sweeter when you are truly sorrowful over your sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Everybody in the room, I think, you want comfort? Yeah. Well, mourn over your sin. Or in Psalm 126, verse 5, it says, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. This is an important thing to realize. And sorrow over sin is going to, as we're going to see, lead to change. And some of you, that you, you see in your spiritual life just kind of like this. It's just kind of flat. And you're wanting to know, why aren't the crops of righteousness growing up in my life? And part of the reason is they're not being watered by the tears of godly sorrow. And we're not seeing change because when we see sin in our life, we treat it with a ho-hum attitude. Yeah, it's forgiven. Instead of truly being sorrowful for it. And then the sorrow will lead us, third ingredient of repentance, confession of sin. And this confession should be voluntary. Us going to God, it should be sincere. It should be without excuse. Not blaming it on, let's just say, your spouse, for instance. Taking ownership of your sin before God. Being specific about your sin. And this confession should be regular. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, one of the things in there is, forgive us our debts. You should be confessing your sin to God on a daily basis. This should be a regular part of your prayer life. Is it? If our whole life is to be one of repentance, it should be. If we're going to pray like Jesus taught us to, it should be confession of sin. Fourth ingredient, shame for sin. And this is similar in some ways to sorrow, but I think a distinction would be when we feel a proper sense of shame for our sin, we sense the gravity of what we have done. And we realize that when we sin, there is some genuine and deserved embarrassment that comes along with that. When we really consider our sin in light of the holiness of God. Just this week, I was listening to a sermon in Numbers chapter 20, where Moses, out of anger, he strikes the rock when God told him, hey, I, just speak to the rock and it's going to give forth water. But Moses, he gets angry at the people. And we might say, well, cut the guy a break. This people, they were out of control. They were a bunch of whiners. He, he got angry. You might say, I feel like I'm doing that at my house every day with my, my kids. I, I see where you're coming from, Moses. But God looks at Moses and says, because you didn't honor me as holy, in front of the people. You're not leading them into the promised land. That Moses' anger, although we might line up and say, well, maybe he was justified. God says, no. That, that, that does shame. That didn't honor me as holy. When we start seeing our sin with that kind of gravity, saying that, well, my sin is an offense to the holiness of God, and my sin shows that I don't really trust God, 
we should feel ashamed of it. Another thing we should consider when we feel a proper sense of shame for our sin is the weight of the cross. That our sin is because of your sin and my sin that Jesus, the spotless son of God, died. He, he bore the punishment that our sins deserve. When we, next time we confess our sin and we see sin in our life, we should think more about that. And it will lead to a fifth ingredient of repentance, hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. And one of the quotes in, in this book is that Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed and hated. And, and see, these other steps will lead us to this hatred. And lots of times we don't experience the, the hatred for sin that we should because we just kind of skipped over the sorrow and shame and confession part. And so then we kind of end up feeling okay with sin. Now, another quote that he has in, in the book is that after the cloud have, of sorrow has dropped in tears, the firmament of the soul is clearer. As Southern California residents, that should be something that we resonate with. That, you know, we, we live in the world of smog and you, you drive over the toll road into Newport and you just kind of look over LA and there's this just kind of brown cloud everywhere. We've all seen that. But the day after we've had a nice, good rain, you, you drive over that and it's like you can reach out and touch Catalina. It's crystal clear. And, and that's what he's saying. After the, the sorrow of our sin comes in and brings the, the rain, then everything becomes clear. And you get to see sin for what it is and you hate it with the right kind of hatred. And that will lead, number six, turning from sin. That I'm now gonna do something different. And this turning, it's gonna be strong and willful and earnest and eager like Zacchaeus. Hey, I'm gonna make right what I've done wrong or what you looked at hopefully in the application questions and are gonna talk about in your group. 2 Corinthians 7, 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So we think through all those things, seeing your sin, being sorry for your sin, confessing your sin, having proper sense of shame for your sin, hating your sin, turning from your sin. H have you done that first in the, you know, capital R sense? Do you see those ingredients in the story of your life, in the story of your conversion? So the Bible makes it clear repentance, that's, that's part of becoming a Christian. There's no way around it. No, that's not works righteousness. No, it's a moment. It's a, it's a decision. It comes right along with our faith in Christ. But then, are these ingredients that you're continuing to see in your life as you continue to follow the Lord in a, you know, a smaller sense of repentance that we should all experience even on a daily basis? Now, as we think about all these things, that's not entirely pleasant. Hey, we should feel more sorrow for our sin. We should feel more shame in our lives. Sorrow and shame aren't things that we generally sign up for and say, yes, please, I would like more of that. So why should we emphasize that? Well, I want to close just by emphasizing what it leads to. Or even as Pastor Mike put it this weekend, rejoice that grace covers the penitent. Let's think about it this way as we wrap up. Embrace the grace that follows repentance. Embrace the grace that follows repentance. 
And again, we're not talking about penance, some idea of going out and trying to atone for your own sins. We can never provide the satisfaction that sin requires. Jesus Christ did that. And in response to that truth of what Jesus did, God calls us to repent. And there's an incredible link in the New Testament between repentance and forgiveness. And when we, capital R, repent, we are covered by Jesus Christ, his perfect life for us, his death for our sins, his resurrection power now at work in us to change us and make us into new people. That is complete, that is full, that is final. Jesus paid it all. When you repent, it's not like God says, okay, great, here's the down payment. Now I'm gonna set you up to pay the rest in monthly installments. No, that's not how it works. Jesus paid it all. And he's not, God is not some debt consolidation agency saying, okay, now I put all your debt together and now you just owe it to me. No, Jesus paid it all. Your debt is gone. And more than that, you're adopted into his family. God has now made you his sons and daughters. Do you really believe that? Because some of you are walking around, even here tonight, holding on to expired sorrow and shame. That repentance has come and gone, but you are still holding on to, I mean, I feel so sad and I'm, I'm so ashamed of what I have done. And you struggle with really believing that Jesus can pay for everything. You know, expired sorrow and expired shame are every bit as disgusting as expired milk. We've all had that experience, right? Go pour the milk over the, uh, the Captain Crunch in the morning and uh, put a spoonful in your mouth. You know, instantly, where is the sink? Let me get this out as fast as I can. None of us sit there and, eh, whatever, I'm just gonna drink it. <laughs> no. But here's the thing. Sometimes that's what we do with sorrow and, and, and shame. That, that, that have a job to lead us to repentance And once we repent, that's when we then should experience the comfort, the joy of forgiveness. And man, holding on to expired sorrow and shame, that's going to wreck your insides more than drinking expired milk. It's really going to wreck your your soul. And it's going to fill your life with, with doubt and with depression. When God wants us walking in joy over our forgiveness. And sure, yeah, there's some of you in this room that you skip right over the the sorrow and the shame part and and what's next, and you're not going to see growth in your life as a result of that. But there's some of you, you camp out in the sorrow and the shame, and you never leave, and you're not going to grow because of that. So if some of you this week, you're you're struggling with sin or shame, I mean, sorrow or shame over things that are long gone and, and, and done with, would you remember Zacchaeus? Would you remember God's forgiveness of this wicked man? Or like you looked at in your Questions, would you remember Paul and how God forgave him? And would you move forward and then joyfully live your life for Christ? Not out of some compulsion that I have to repay the the debt that I owe him, but joyfully for him because he has paid it all for us. And I'd hope that all of you don't leave here tonight without a ticket. Don't leave here tonight without making sure I have, capital R, repented of my sin. My life is headed a different direction now with Jesus Christ right at the center of it. He is in control. He's driving this ship. But I also hope that all of us would leave here with, as we encounter sin in our lives, more sorrow and more shame 
over our sin so that then we can experience more comfort and more joy from the forgiveness that God brings to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and God, so many times in Luke, we've seen amazing examples of the forgiveness of God. Over and over, we see that God is a God who seeks and saves the lost. We see it with Zacchaeus. We saw it with the prodigal son whose father came running to him and embraced him and put a robe on him and killed the fatted calf for him. God, you are a God of extravagant grace. And we praise you for that. But God, help us to understand this principle of repentance. And God, I pray that there's anybody in the room tonight, God, that they have never truly turned from their sin or, or they think that they can get away with just some minor course correction instead of complete life change and being born again. God, that tonight would be the night when that happens. But God, I pray for all of us. Lord, I want to see us all grow. I want to see us all become more like Christ. I want to see us all experience the, the joy of our salvation and the joy of walking with you. But God, one of the things that's going to lead to that growth is seeing sin for what it is, calling it out for what it is, being sorry and, and, and ashamed of our sin, hating our sin, and turning from it. God, may we not grow stale or stagnant in our walk with you, but may we continue to fight sin and, and to see it for what it is as an offense to a holy God that sent Jesus to the cross. But then God, as we deal with our sin, may the cross fill us with the sense of forgiveness and joy and satisfaction in you. Bless us as we go to our small groups now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's